last book of the Bible, and we're going to complete a series of messages that um, have required some diligence in our part and endurance on your part, and we're excited about reaching the end of the series tonight, the flyover of the revelation of Jesus Christ. J. Vernon McGee, preaching through the Bible over and over again, would say on the radio, get on the Bible bus. Well, got to get on the Bible jet tonight because we have some some uh, we have some distance to travel. So it's a wonderful, wonderful book of the Bible with a very clear and simple message. The the takeaway from Revelation is very clear and very simple. If you were to take the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you were to read it, there's much symbolic that you might not initially understand. But if you read it carefully, you would get the main idea. The main idea is really very simple, and it really is very clear. But yet, for the rest of your life, you could study this book, and you could still be kind of unfolding the drama. Revelation begins with John, the last surviving apostle, an old man on exile. He's in exile on a small barren island called Patmos, and Patmos was located in the Aegean Sea, the sea that goes north up out of the Mediterranean Sea. It's southwest of the major city of Ephesus, which was headquarters for John for the main part of his ministry. The Roman authorities had banished John to Patmos because of his faithful preaching of the gospel. You see this in Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He'd been banished there for preaching. While he's on Patmos, John gets a series of visions that, are, that lay out before him the, the history, the future history of the world. So it's very fascinating. When he was arrested, John was in Ephesus ministering to the church there. And Ephesus was, in a way, the kind of founding church or the mother church for a number of, of uh, churches in that region, which is in modern uh, Turkey uh, today, Asia Minor. So when he was arrested, John was in Ephesus ministering to the church there and then to the churches in the surrounding cities. And he was seeking to strengthen those congregations. So he couldn't any longer minister them in person. So following the divine command that's given there in verse 11, he he puts the vision down in a letter. And I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are real churches in real time. The churches had begun to feel the effects of persecution. At least one man, probably a pastor, had already been martyred. You see this in chapter 2 and verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Uh, days, uh, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, it was killed among you where Satan dwells. There was obviously a martyrdom. John himself, again, had been exiled, but the storm of persecution was about to break in full fury on these seven churches that were so dear to the apostles' heart. And you see that in verse 10 of chapter 2. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you'll have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so John is pouring out his love and encouragement to churches that are about to go through intense persecution. To these 
these churches, Revelation provides a message of hope. Hear this now. God is in sovereign control of the events of human history. This you see as you read this book. God is in sovereign control of all the events of human history. And though evil often seems pervasive, and it seems like wicked men are in power and all-powerful, their doom is certain, and Christ will come in glory. He will judge and rule and gain the victory, and heaven and earth will come together. And that's the message of the book. Revelation reveals an unseen war, a real war, a spiritual war in the heavens, which is happening behind the scenes and playing out on the earth, and it switches back and forth. And this is a key literary feature of this book. The scene switches back and forth from heaven to earth and heaven to earth and heaven to earth over and over again. It's critical if you want to understand the, the revelation of Jesus Christ to realize that you have the camera. It's like a good novel or it's or like a good movie. It goes, it, It'll be on earth and the scene will be there. And then the camera goes to heaven and back to earth and back to heaven. And there's a significant difference between heaven and earth. And that is obvious and clear when you read and you study this. Let me show you just a couple of things before we jump in chapter by chapter. And this is not advancing for me. So if you help advance that to the next slide, that'd be great. I'm going to show you a couple of slides here that give you a bit of the overview of Revelation just in a kind of quick synopsis. So it's Christ in the church in chapter 1 and verse 9 through 3 and 22. This is Christ working among the candlestick symbolic reference of the church. So again, in chapters 1 through 3, you have Jesus working in the church age, among the churches, and the churches are named. And then Christ in the tribulation. Of course, you see that's a lot, right? Chapter 4 through 19, just understand this, chapters 4 through 19 are descriptive of events that are happening during this tribulation, and especially during the great tribulation, and then also little parentheses that are going to heaven to see what's happening in heaven while the tribulation is happening on earth. But you see that's a big part of the book of Revelation. Chapters 4 through 19 are talking about the tribulation. So get in mind, you have talking about the church age, 1 through 3, talking about the tribulation, 4 through 19. You can probably guess what it's going to talk about in the remaining chapters, the rest of the sweep of biblical history. Christ and the millennial kingdom, chapter 20, you have the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000-year reign of Christ. In chapter 20, chapter 21 and 22, Christ and what we call the eternal state, new Jerusalem, new heaven and new earth. And uh, that's just a kind of way of looking at Revelation. Take a quick look at that. We're moving on. There are a lot of sevens. You can't read the book of Revelation without recognizing how many sevens are in it. These are just a few of them. The sevenfold spirit. If you study the Bible carefully and recognize the book of Isaiah, it's talking about the Holy Spirit's seven qualities of the Holy Spirit. The sevenfold spirit is the Holy Spirit. It talks about the seven churches repeatedly in symbolic ways and literal uh, descriptions of seven churches. The, the book of Revelation talks about seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And a big chunk of Revelation 4 through 19 are, the, uh, are these seals, trumpets, and bowls, which are judgments. They're symbolic ways of referring to judgments that are falling out on the earth or happening or occurring on the earth during the tribulation, especially during the Great Tribulation, the last half of the seven-year period of time, literally known as the tribulation. Seven seals, chapter 4 chapter through chapter 8, seven ju- trumpet judgments, 
8 through 11, angels blow the trumpets, things happen on earth. Seals are unsealed, things happen on earth. And seven bowls, bowls or vials are poured out, if you will, and things happen on earth. So these are symbolic ways of referring to things that are literally going to happen on earth during a tribulation period, again, from chapters 4 through 16. Chapter 17 talks about seven dooms. Chapter 21 and 22 talk about seven new things. Obviously, a lot of sevens in the Revelation. Let's just go chapter to chapter now. So get your Bible out, open it up in your lap, and let's just go chapter by chapter through the Revelation. I admire you for being here tonight. This seems like if you're here tonight, it's because you love God and you love the Bible. And so I commend you for being here. I hope this is a treasure to you. By the way, thank you for letting me study the Bible, the Word of God, and spent a bunch of time, many hours this week, just in this book. What a gorgeous book it is. What a beautiful... You know, isn't it funny how as we've done this series, we just keep saying that over and over again. The Bible is such a wonderful book. And the more you study it, the more profoundly you realize what a wonderful book the Bible is. Chapter 1 is an introduction to the vision of John. You have the promise of blessing that's given here. Notice it says in chapter 1 and verse 1, is to show his servants things which must shortly or swiftly take place. Things are going to happen in the future, and they're going to unfold swiftly or with great um, uh, arresting um, uh, display. There's a promise of blessing to those who read and keep the words of the book. It's, it's at the beginning and the end of the book, Revelation 1-3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud, the actual word, reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And the blessing is repeated in Revelation 22. It says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So you're blessed to read it, blessed to read it aloud, blessed to keep. If you want to be blessed, get this book open in your lap, read it, read it aloud, keep its words. And God promises is a blessing. Pastor Michael went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas is a well-known institution that teaches uh, sound eschatology things to come. He said this week, as we were talking about this, that one of the things they had him do is read the book of Revelation twice out loud. And when he did this, he said, just reading the book out loud just made him weep. There are such beautiful parts of this the revelation of Jesus Christ. I recommend it to you if you're ever discouraged. By the way, understand, the book is written to people who had reason on earth to be discouraged, reason on earth to feel defeated. And the book is written to display the victory, the ultimate victory of Jesus, not just ultimately, but that he's continually victorious in the heavens. There is an unmovable throne in the heavens continually, no matter what's happening on earth. So you can imagine, you and I ought to read the revelation of Jesus Christ just for our own encouragement. John is writing the book to be circulated among the seven churches of Asia Minor in modern Turkey. They are seven churches. They're listed in chapters 2 and 3. They're real churches. All of them existed in the first century, and they're founded as a result of Paul's ministry out of Ephesus. The book comes from the Trinity, chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. If you read them, you can see that each member of the Trinity is listed as speaking. The book clearly stated that from the start, the book is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 7, Behold, He's coming with clouds. Every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all tribes on earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, get ready. The book is saying, you're going to see Jesus coming back. Power and glory to rule victoriously in this book. That's what the book is about. The future and particularly the, the crowning event of the future, the return of, of Jesus Christ. John had been exiled to the island of Patmos there in the Aegean Sea, not far from Ephesus, again because of his testimony and because of his preaching. And then on the Lord's Day, probably on Sunday, he was privileged to have a series of visions, and they were given to him as a message for the churches. And you see this again in verses 9-11. through 11. He has a vision of Jesus moving among the lampstands. There's this symbolic reference to lampstands. We don't have to read very far before we realize what the lampstands are. The lampstands are symbols for churches. This is stated specifically in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the messengers, the angels, perhaps the pastors of the seven churches. The seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So he's using symbolic, um, symbolic means to refer to literal things. And this is how we, we understand that. It's very clear. Now, the seven angel messengers or pastors of the seven churches receive uh, the, this, this vision or these messages. Jesus is moving among the churches. He's working among the churches. He's ministering to the churches, and he has a message for the churches. Verse 19 has an outline of the whole book, and it, it uh, unfolds like this. Chapter 1, it, 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 said, it, will, it will say this. Things, write the things which you have seen. As the angel says to John in the vision, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which are to come. And everybody who studies this book recognizes that is an outline of the book. The things which are seen in the past, chapter 1, things that are unfolding in the churches at the time, chapters 2 and 3, letters to the seven churches. By the way, there's sevenfold letters to the seven churches. The messages to the churches have seven parts. And the, uh, so the things you've seen, the things that are, and the things which are to come, and obviously that's the rest of the book, from chapter 4 to 22, are things that are going to happen in the future, and they clearly are things that are going to happen in the future. So in chapters 2 and 3, you have these letters to the churches. The letter to Ephesus, an Orthodox church. In other words, they believed right, but they were cold. They left their first love. And in a, in a sense, the, the essence of the message to Ephesus was repent and turn back. In Smyrna, that was the persecuted church, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And, the, and they, were, they were persecuted, but the message to them was repent. Pergamus was the worldly church. The message, can you guess? It was to repent. Thyatira was a tolerant church. Intolerant in a bad sense. The, the message to the church of Thyatira, from, uh, the message was repent. Sardis was a dead church. The message was repent. Philadelphia was a faithful church. The only one not told to repent. Laodicea was a lukewarm church. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. The message to the church of Laodicea was repent. Think about this for a minute. What would characterize our church? If you think about this, what would, what would, how would the Holy Spirit characterize this church? What would the message to this church be? Well, it's likely repent, because the message to all these churches was repent. You're always on safe footing if you just start with repentance. What is it that the Spirit would have us repent of? What would the message to our church be? What would he say to the pastor of the church to reveal to the people of the church to listen to the message of the pastor and regard it? You see what's happening here? Jesus is moving among the candlesticks. 
He's giving a message to the pastors. The pastor's giving a message to the church. The message for most of the churches is repent. It's safe for us to, real, to, to probably to follow the pattern. When God speaks to the pastor, he gives them a message to the people, and the people should usually repent or be encouraged. Chapters 2 and 3 are about that. It's interesting. Now, chapters 2 and 3 are about the church, right? But chapter 4 is interesting. It's the first time we go to heaven now. The scene shifts from the church age and from churches on earth, specific churches in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, and the scene shifts to heaven now. And this is something you're going to see throughout the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The scene keeps switching like a movie from earth to heaven, and on earth is chaos, and on heaven is worship. Over and over again, you see that. Earth is chaos, heaven is worship. The vision unfolds. We clearly see the scene on earth and the scene on, in heaven are different. In earth, you have a, a, on, in heaven, in chapter 4, you have a, uh, a scene of un- fantastic worship. You have a scene, a beautiful scene of the throne, of unmovable throne, a set throne, chapter 4 and verse 2, a permanent throne in heaven. The one on the throne has an amazing appearance if you read Revelation 4. There's a rainbow around the throne. We just sang about that tonight. There's this incredible description of this incredible throne and this uh, it, it language that kind of, that, that, that kind of exhausts the, the writer's ability to describe what it's like there in heaven. The true church. The church is on earth in chapters 2 and 3, right? The church is on earth in, in chapters 2 and 3. If you study the symbols carefully in Revelation 4, the church is in heaven in Revelation 4. Why is that? We believe the rapture happens between 3 and 4. church goes from earth to heaven because the emphasis is here on the future. There were messages to the churches, and the church is on earth there in Revelation 3. But in Revelation chapter 4, the symbolism is all church symbolism. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. There's a throne in heaven. Chapter 4 and verse 2, there are 24 elders representing the church. They've been given crowns. That's what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. The church is given the crown, rewards of crowns. Again, this happens at the judgment seat. And they worship the one who sits on the throne and they say, you are worthy. You are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. You're the king of everything on heaven and earth. This is a big deal now. This is a key and critical repeated thing in Revelation. It's like earth and heaven belong to the king who's on the throne. Earth and heaven belong to the king who's on the throne. There's going to be a neat twist, a surprise at the end. Anything, even though there's chaos on earth and there's peace and worship in heaven, earth and heaven belong to the one who, who is on the throne. The raptured, rewarded, redeemed worship the one who is on the permanent throne of heaven in chapter 4. And verse 5 says, lightnings and, and thunder proceed uh, from the throne. Read that, chapter 4. This is an amazing thing to read after these things. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things which much, must take place after this. 
Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Set, in other words, permanently set. He who sat there was like a jasper and sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, appearance like an emerald. Around the throne, 24 thrones, and the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightning, thunder, voices, seven lambs of fire burning before the throne, the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit of God. Before the throne, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes, front and back. These were angels. The first living creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face as a man. The fourth living creature like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And You created all things and by Your will they exist and were created. There are questions that emerge about the symbolism here, but it is quite obvious what's happening. There is one on the throne who rules. He is worthy of worship. And the church is in heaven worshiping the one who's worthy on this incredible, beautiful uh, jewel-studded throne with the sweep of rainbow over it. That's chapter 4. What an amazing chapter. This is a shocking scene of of unearthly worship in heaven. A stunning scene of lights and noises and color and multitude singing. In heaven, it's a place of amazing unbelievable, indescribable worship. Chapter 5 is still in heaven. In chapter 5, the worship pauses, though, and there's a dilemma. There is a scroll. It's sealed seven times. As you begin to un- unroll the scroll in, peri- in increments, it has seals. There are seven seals in the scroll. This scroll is the title deed to the earth. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 that's about to happen. The earth is the inheritance of Christ, and He will now rule with a rod of iron, and He will break all the opposition in pieces, as it says in Psalm 2. This is about to happen now. So Jesus takes the scroll, and this is the beginning of the unfolding of what is about to take place on the earth. This causes worship to explode in heaven in chapter 5, verse 8. Let's read that. Chapter 5, verse 8, because they found one who's worthy to open the scroll, to open the title deed to the earth, to do whatever he wants to do on the earth, that makes them explode in worship. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. These are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. You were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. This is the church in heaven. Then I beheld and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the number of them was 10,000 times, 10,000 and thousands of thousands. They're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on earth. Get it? In heaven and on earth. Over and over 
over and over again, it, it says, this one who is worthy of worship is in control of heaven and he's, going, he's the victor over the earth too. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. The 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. This is awesome, isn't it? It's chapter 5. Chapter 5. The original audience, the churches, if you will, of Asia Minor were in a circumstance that was dangerous and discouraging. They were oppressed under the despotic rule of Domitian Caesar, AD 95-96. Domitian used his power to try to impose the worship of Jupiter. He built temples to the worship of Jupiter. He tried to impose the deification of the imperial family. In other words, he wanted people to worship him. He wanted people to give gifts to him at the temple of Jupiter. The proof that you gave your gift at the temple of Jupiter was that you received a seal. So everyone could look at you. Yes, they did worship Jupiter. Christians would have trouble doing this, right? Principled Christians would have trouble doing this. And so on the heart of every Christ follower was pressure to worship a false deity. And toward the end of his reign, followers of Christ were heavily persecuted. So living under the threat of growing persecution and world dominance, they would have wondered when the boot of oppression was going to crush the life out of the church. And and so John the beloved apostle, an aged apostle, the key leader of the Ephesian, our founding church, He says, I have a vision and I have seen heaven and Jesus is up there and he has the title deed. He owns the earth and he is going to decide what's going to happen on the earth. A very encouraging message then to the original audience. The language used here is the same language that the emperor would have used and wanted the people to use that he was worthy. And so you have chapter 6. This, by the way, is rejoicing and worship in heaven and all of heaven and grown tired of the rebellion on earth. And so the worthy lamb is about to assert his authority on earth and open the seals of the title. The, the seals then, as each seal opens, things are going to happen on the earth. Chapter 6 is on earth. Chapter 6, the seven seals begin to unroll. Each seal that breaks open reveals something more that's going to happen on earth. The first seal is peace, symbolized by a white horse. There you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the apocalypse revelation unveiling of Jesus Christ. Chapter 6 and verse 1 is the white the, the, the first seal is peace, symbolized by the white horse. It's a false peace. The church now in heaven, the tribulation is beginning on earth. At first, all is peaceful in the tribulation. That's what it says in Daniel 9, 27. Initially, there's a treaty or a covenant of peace there described in the Bible, but it's not going to last because it's a false peace. And the one sitting on the white horse here is an imposter in chapter 6 and verse 2. It is the Antichrist. His peace is a, is a uh, counterfeit peace. The second seal is war. In chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it's symbolized by the red horse. I'm not keeping up with my slides, am I? That will help you. The third seal is famine, symbolized by the black horse. The fourth seal is death, symbolized by the pale horse. Obviously, false peace is followed by war, is followed by famine, is followed by death. And the fifth seal is opened. It reveals there are people, souls of those who were slain in the tribulation under the altar. They cry, how long until you avenge our blood? And they are given robes. It's kind of like, here, here's some robes. Hold on. Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. The only one to whom vengeance belongs is about to avenge the blood of those who are martyred in the tribulation. 
And they will have to wait until their number is completed, but it won't be long. It's almost like, look at this terrible thing happening on earth and these that have been persecuted and even died. But wait, even though they're crying out there, they're given a promise and they're given a guarantee. Then this sixth seal opens. It's an earthquake, chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. Earthquake on earth, sun is black and moon turns to blood. Joel prophesied of this. It's also repeated in the Acts. Stars fall from heaven. Everything's coming unglued on earth, right? The heavens depart like a scroll. Every mountain and island is moved. There's tremendous fear, verses 15 through 17. People want to die but can't. The earth is plunged into chaos. People plead for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb who's on the throne. Let's read chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in caves and in rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who can stand? The vengeance, the perfect justice of God is being poured out on the earth now during the tribulation and people are crying out for mercy. But this is just the beginning. There are, uh, those are the first six of the seven seals of the scroll, the lamb who's worthy to open. And the seventh seal will be open in chapter 8. The scene on earth will continue then. But for now, the scene switches back from the horror of earth to heaven. And so when you get to chapter 7, you have heaven. Chapter 7 is a beautiful scene of heaven, the 144,000 and the tribulation saints in the midst of protection and blessing. Uh, some will be spared, 144,000 Jews from every tribe except them are elect, chosen to be saved, and they'll be one day in the kingdom. In the middle of the week, there'll be Jews who've been saved, and they will go through the second half preaching the gospel. Verse 9, they'll be effective winning a group that no man can number. The Bible says there'll be a great soul harvest this way in the tribulation. And they're the fruits of the 144,000 amazing Jewish evangelists. This is chapter 7. And there's another scene of worship. Let's read this one. This scene of worship is in chapter 7. And, and we could read all, look at verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God. In other words, deliverance belongs to our God. Deliverance, salvation belongs to to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne. The elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne, worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power and might be to our God forever and ever. Does this sound familiar to you? It's repetitive. Every time we go to heaven, what's happening? They're giving honor to the Lamb, the all-powerful Lamb who sits on the throne, who meets out justice on the earth, and He's victorious in heaven and earth, and He's worthy of worship. Every time we go to earth, chaos. Every time we go to heaven, what do we have? We have everyone facing the throne and giving worship to the uh, omnipotent, all-powerful God who's on the throne. Do you see what I'm saying? The message of Revelation is repeated over and over again. It's actually really very simple to understand. On earth is chaos. In heaven, God is in control. In the end, God's going to come to earth. Heaven and earth are going to come together. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself. You see a pattern here? When we look at heaven, it's the scene of beauty and order and worship, and everyone is facing the stunning, the dazzling throne, worshiping the Lamb. It's beautiful. It's ordered. They're singing in strong proclamation. God speaks with authority like lightning and thunder. But when we look on earth, it's chaos and disaster and terror and a flaming holocaust of judgment. Chapter 8, back to the earth. Chapter 8 now goes back and catches and picks up the seventh seal. There are, there are going to be three sets of seven judgments. Remember, seals and, and, and trumpets and bowls. Three sets of seven judgments, symbolic ways of referring to things that are going to happen on the earth during the tribulation, seven sets. And some believe that as the seven uh, sets unroll, the seventh of the set is, the seventh contains the other seven within it. And something, they happen seven, and then seven, and then seven. You can talk about that over coffee. Chapter seven, again, chapter eight reveals the seventh seal. There are going to be three sets of seven judgments, a set of seven seal judgments, a set of seven bowl judgment, but judgments, a set of seven trumpet judgments. They're just symbolic ways of referring to what God is going to do on the earth. And so this is the seventh seal judgment. The response is silence in heaven for a half an hour. Silence. The worship stops. It may be that the seventh seal judgment has seven parts. Seven trumpet judgments are within the seventh judgment. I don't know if that makes sense to you. The seven trumpet judgments of the great tribulation now here are described. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. For about a half hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a gold censer, came and stood at the altar, was given much incense, that he would offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense from the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. (laughs) Come to prayer meeting. And be a praying person, right? And the angel took the censer, filled it with a fire from the altar, threw it to the earth. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. See what I mean? It sounds like the seven trumpets were a part of the seventh seal, if that makes sense. And I'll let you see a pattern here. The eighth reveals the seventh seal. The first trumpet then is here. Uh, hail and fire, chapter 8 and verse 7. The second trumpet, the sea turns to blood, chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, on earth. When a third trumpet sounds by the lips of an angel, a star falls from heaven, and the water turns toxic, chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Do you remember the chaos that America went into when two towers fell and the Pentagon was attacked? Remember the chaos that happened? We still feel the chaos from that on the earth in America. Do you imagine the chaos of those simple bombs that went off at the end of the Boston Marathon? Tremendous heartache and chaos. Can you imagine the things described here? What's going to be, what the earth is going to be like? This is a horrific time. The fourth judgment sounds chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And the fourth judgment, it's a trumpet judgment. And a third of the sky, sun is struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars are darkened. The angel flies around crying, woe, woe, woe to everyone on earth because there are going to be three more terrible trumpet judgments to come. And the people on the earth hear the crying, the angels crying, woe. This adds to the terror on the earth. In chapter 9, we're still on the earth. 
The chapter 9 trumpets 5 and 6 are going to sound. It's going to get worse. Fifth trumpet is blown by an angel and a star falls from heaven to earth. The star is Lucifer, Satan, going to get the keys to the bottomless pit with terrible smoke releases demons from the bottomless pit. They will torment men and women for five months. And the torment will be so severe during that time they will wish they were dead. This is a symbolic picture of demonic chaos and torment on the earth. The demons will attack those who are not sealed unto God. People will desire to die again, but they will not. And they will commonly continue to blaspheme God. We know this chapter is describing demons because they're ruled by the destroyer who comes from the bottomless pit. There is a symbolic description in verses 7 to 10 of these demonic beings. According to verse 11, they have a king over them who is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon which means destroyer. In the Greek tongue, Apollyon, which means destroyer. Still, there are two more horrifying judgment, trumpet judgments that are going to sound on the earth. At the sound of the sixth trumpet, the Euphrates River opens, a horde of horsemen numbering 200 million flood in to kill by fire and smoke and brimstone. This may be a symbolic description of modern warfare. Those who were not killed but didn't repent, they cursed God amazingly. They blaspheme God. Listen as we read Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They should not worship demons, idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries, their drug abuse, or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They blasphemed and they would not repent. And judgment comes on them. This is, there's a seventh trumpet, but that won't come until toward the end of chapter 11. The scene now shifts from this horrifying chaos on earth, and guess where it goes? Again, back to heaven in chapter 10. Chapter 10, while all this chaos is on earth, heaven is again worshiping and peaceful. In verse 7, we read the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The mystery of God is revealed. John is given a scroll, told to eat it. John eats the scroll and he says, it's bitter, it's sweet. In other words, there's glory in heaven, that's sweet. There's devastation and judgment among the saints on earth, that's bitter. Chapter 11. Chapter 11, we still are seeing the scene in heaven. It's another picture of the order and justice around the throne in heaven. There are two people. Who they are, we don't know. Two olive trees, two lampstands. These are two men who preach Jesus Christ, whoever they are. They're protected. Fire from their mouths for their own protection. This would be very cool. Um, they're two witnesses. The beast then comes from the pit finally and kills them in Jerusalem. And they leave their bodies in the street. And everyone sees them for three and a half days. They, re- they, they rejoice. They give gifts to one another because these witnesses are killed. But then, in verse 11, they're resurrected again. And they stand to their feet, and fear falls on all who see them. And a voice from heaven says, come up here. And there's an earthquake, and the remnant glorify God. And after that, back to the seventh trumpet. Trumpet. Read this finale in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become... Tell me if you can't hear Handel's Messiah in this. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders, there they are again, who sat before God on their thrones, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks... 
O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come before you have taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. In the time of the dead, they should be judged that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. And those who fear your name, small and great, should destroy those who destroyed the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. There were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and great hail. Again, do you see the authority, the dominion, the power, the peace, the sovereignty in heaven around the throne and the one who sits on the throne and the worship for him and on earth, the chaos. Chapter 13, I just, chapter 12, Satan's persecution in chapter 12. A description of Satan's persecution against the people of God. The woman is Israel. The child is Christ. The dragon is referred to as a dragon. Satan is symbolically referred to as a dragon. This again, chapter 12, is a description of Satan's relentless persecution of Israel and God's continual protection of Israel and his blessing on them. Now, track with me. These are things that are going to literally happen on earth and literally happen in heaven in the future. Chapter 13 is on earth. On earth, here you have the, the, the introduction of the Antichrist in verse 4. 42 months, three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation. He has a cohort named the false prophet with Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. You have a demonic trinity, a false trinity. Chapter 13, verse 11 to the end introduce us to the false prophet. The beast is Antichrist. Earth is filled with demonized people and with demons. 666, the number of man's system here, always short of the perfect number of seven. The passage speaks of a cashless society. This is obviously coming quickly, and all of us can tell that. This will be used as a way to control and oppress people and forbid people to buy and to eat. So this is another kind of persecution. Chapter 14 goes to heaven. The scene shifts back to heaven. Another scene there is about the victory of the Lord Jesus. The 144,000 in chapter 14 are in heaven and they're singing praise because of the victory of Jesus Christ. Back and forth from earth, from earth and chaos to heaven and peace and worship. There's a glimpse of Armageddon in this chapter, a cycle of harvest judgment. And chapter, tw- chapter 14, verse 20 sums it up. Chapter 14 and verse 20 gives a summary of it. And the wine press was trampled outside the city, and the blood came up out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. This would be the north, south, south to north measure of Israel all over the land. Chapter 15, the scene goes to heaven. In chapter 15, we'll introduce the seven last plagues. The scene in heaven, and these plagues are bold judgments, right? The scene in heaven is getting ready for the final judgments now. These are bold judgments. Chapter 15 is a prelude to these judgments. Seven golden bowls filled with judgment plagues are given to angels, and they're going to be poured out upon the earth. A symbolic way to refer to these judgments that are going to happen in the last half of the tribulation period. The great tribulation. The temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And chapter 16 is on the earth. And you have these bowls described. You have the first bowl judgments, chapter uh, 16, verse 2, soars. Verse 3, the second bowl, the sea turns to blood. Verses 4 and 5, the third bowl, rivers and lakes turn to blood. Verses 8 and 9, the fourth bowl, men and women are scorched. 
chapter uh, 16, verses 10 and 11, darkness and pain are the fifth bowl. And again, it says the people did not repent. Incredulously, amazingly, they're blinded and stubborn and willful and will not repent. The sixth bowl, the Euphrates, dries up in chapter uh, 16, verses 12 through 16, and it described, describes Armageddon then. You can tell we're getting toward the end, right? The seventh bowl, the earth is shaken. That's in chapters uh, 16, verses 17 through 21. Lightning and thunder and hail, a hundred pound hail. This is the finale of God's wrath. And what does it say there at the end of that chapter? And the people continue to blaspheme God. Their rebellion is reaching a fever pitch. God's justice is coming down on the earth. Chapter 17 and 18 are a flashback, a poetic device, and it flashes back to two things. 17, chapter 17 of Revelation talks about the religious environment during the tribulation, and chapter 18 talks about the economic environment during the tribulation, and they're both bad. These two chapters are a backtrack. The, the false religion of the tribulation, keep in mind the original audience, they're facing pressure to cave in to false Worship. This book is saying, don't do it. Look what's going to happen to false worship in the end. So 17, chapter 17 is about religion on earth during the tribulation. The true church is the bride. The false church is the harlot. She's in bed with the Antichrist. But he then devours the false church, and he tolerates no other religion but the worship of himself. And this is the theme of chapter 17. The theme of chapter 18 goes back over the same period of time, emphasizes the economy during this devastating time. It's a time of economic collapse. You can see that from reading chapter 18 and verse 10. In verse 11, it is the merchants who are mourning in verse 11. It's not... It's no more music on earth. Groaning is now turned to bitter wailing. Verse 19, God has arranged worldwide economic disaster on the earth. Um, All the attention of the cosmos is turning toward the shocking, epic scene here that's unfolding. Again, chapter 18 was the economy. Chapter 19, I went ahead of myself, excuse me, for confusing you there. Heaven's rejoicing over the justice of God. In verse 20 of chapter 18, heaven's rejoicing over the justice of God. In the world, there's a meltdown coming. Civilization is now crumbling. Uh, Along with all the accoutrements of civilization, there is no more music. Read it in chapter 18. There's no more artistic expression, no more business enterprise, no more celebrations, not even wedding celebrations. The earth is in a full-fledged chaos now. It's a terrible place, verses 22 through 24. Now to chapter 19. This is, goes to heaven, but now something's going to happen in chapter 19 that hasn't happened before. You're going to see heaven spilling out of heaven and spilling onto the earth in chapter 19. In heaven, what's happening? A celebration is now beginning in heaven. Mourning, chaos, horrific holocaust on earth. Celebration is beginning to happen in heaven. Many hallelujahs as you read this over and over again. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah in heaven. The marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage of the Lamb. The bride is ready. This is going on in heaven during the tribulation, the marriage of the Lamb. 
Now all the attention of the cosmos turns toward the shocking, epic scene beginning in verse 14. If you, you will, this is chapter 19. And the armies in heaven, verse 14, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on the white horses. Out of his mouth is a sharp sword. Again, you have Christ on a white horse, the return of Christ. That's that's being described here. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is coming from heaven to earth. Get it now? We have heaven coming to earth now. This is the whole thing has been aiming toward this. King of kings, Lord of lords now is coming from heaven to earth on a white horse. He's accompanied by the armies of heaven. He's coming to earth with a rod of iron to rule. This is the consummation of the ages. With him will be attendance by the millions who are in white garments, symbolic of the church. It's the saints those who have died or been raptured. The beast and his armies are defeated and judged. Heaven is spilling out onto earth. Judgment is coming. Justice is coming to earth. Satan, the beast, the false prophet, are cast into the lake of fire in chapter 19. And all rebels are killed by the sword from the mouth that comes from the one who sits on the horse. Chapter 20. Chapter 20 is heaven and earth. In chapter 20, the kingdom is established. The long-awaited, long-promised, divinic, messianic, 1,000-year reign of Christ is established. And there are thrones for saints. 1,000-year reign. Verse 7, The end uh, in the end, Satan is loosed up. The end of this 1,000 years, Satan is loosed for a time. And some of the children of the millennium, born of the faithful of the millennium, will not believe. And they will rebel. Verse 9, fire devours them. In verse 11, the unsaved, all the unsaved of history, will be collected together to the great white throne judgment. Chapter 21 is heaven and earth. In chapter 21, you have the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the eternal state, the eternal kingdom, the eternal kingdom, not the 1,000 year, but the ultimate and eternal reign of Jesus Christ, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom in its fullest essence. In chapter 21, the kingdom, the heaven comes to earth and earth is renewed and it becomes like a garden and God dwells there forever with men and women. An amazing thing. You've got to read it. And then in chapter 22, Heaven and earth is a description. The last message at the end of Revelation chapter 22, verses 17. Uh, 20, chapter 22, verses 17. The spirit and bride say, come, let it happen, right? Let him who hears say, that's us, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him come. Take the water of life freely. The last message there. Look at verse 20. You testifies to these things. Who's that? John, did you lose track of who was writing this? He who testifies to these things, John, says, and Jesus, surely I come quickly. And then, even so, come, Lord, Jesus, John says. Jesus says, surely I'm coming quickly. John says, even so, come, Lord, Jesus. Can you say that with John? You get it now? Does the return of Christ make more sense to you now? Does it make more sense? You say, I've had chaos in my life, but not like that. The chaos described that you described out of the Bible tonight is nothing. It's, it's incredible. The chaos that I have in my life is nothing compared to the chaos that you described tonight. But the king is as powerful and wonderful and omnipotent, and he will come and make heaven and earth one someday. How, what a wonderful book this is. Would you agree? The revelation of Jesus Christ. There's chaos in your life in some degree where sin touches your life. I got a call this week from an old friend whose name was Darren Morton. Darren came to me many years ago. I was 30, uh, 
probably 30, 30 years old. Darren was an unbeliever, but he'd been seeing one of the girls in our church who was a believer. And he came to my study and he said, Pastor, he said, I would like to marry Wendy. And I said, well, tell me about how you came to know the Lord as your Savior. And he was very confused about that. He said, I, I, I believe in God, but I'm, I'm not a born-again Christian. I said, well, Darren, I said, I would never marry a believer to an unbeliever. I couldn't participate in that. He goes, well, then I would like to become a believer. And my inside said, yeah, I bet you would. I bet you would. I've met you kind of guys before. You met a Christian girl, you want to marry her, so you're willing to kind of jump through whatever hoop, have to jump through, and then as soon as you do jump through those hoops, we won't see you anymore. How often does that happen? That's pretty common. But Darren said, please explain to me how to be saved, and I explained to him how to be saved, and Darren was saved. And I married Darren and Wendy on a really, really hot day in August, an amazing day. I'll tell you more about that story, but I'm already a bit over time, so I won't. And Darren and I maintained our friendship through the years. But we went to a pastor's conference one day. In a pastor's conference, there was some really aggressive pastor up there talking about uh, things. And he said, I, I think you guys ought to commit to winning people to Jesus Christ. And I think you ought to commit to winning like 500 a year. Or he gave some amazing number like that. He goes, and those of you that are pastors and are willing to commit to leading 500 souls to Christ this year, I want you to come forward and kneel here and pray. And I'm going to give you a New Testament. And you can list the names of the people that you lead the Lord in the New Testament. And I'm going to challenge you. I don't know if the number was 500. It was an amazing number. It was not a number I could, in good conscience, commit to. But the the guy had stirred my heart, and so I went forward. I said, I'm not taking the Bible, but I am here to say, Lord, use me to win as many people as I can to Jesus Christ. That's what I want to do with my life. And I came back, and Darren was sitting there. He was with me in a pastor's meeting, the fellow that I had led to the Lord. And Darren says to me, why didn't you take the Bible on the way home? We're driving. And he goes, why didn't you take the Bible? And I said, well, Darren, I couldn't take the Bible because I wasn't sure I was going to lead that many people to the Lord. So I just went and prayed, and I didn't take the Bible. And he was thoughtful. And the next day, he came to my office, and he had gone to the Christian bookstore, and he had found a New Testament, a leather New Testament, just like the one I didn't take. And he wrote in it, he said, you may not win hundreds, but you did win me to Christ. Well, his parents were very upset because Darren was wanting to grow in the Lord. So he came to me, and he said, Pastor, he says, I'm thinking about joining the Masons. Should I do that? I said to him, well, Darren, I don't know. You're a part of the church, and there's no more powerful organization on earth than the church of Jesus Christ. And if you're asking me, I would just join the church, and I wouldn't join the Masons. He says, well, do you have anything to read about that? I said, Darren, you're trying to get me in trouble. He said, my dad really wants me to be a Mason, and I don't think I should. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you some books you can read, and you can talk to your dad. His dad was so angry with me. His mom and dad were furiously angry with me because I talked him out of being a Mason, they said. Well, it was real. The Lord working his heart. He didn't want to be a Mason. He told his dad. His dad was angry. Dad lived in Columbus. He went to a Baptist pastor in Columbus. And he said to this Baptist pastor, my kid's up there in Mount Vernon. And some guy, some Baptist pastor telling him he shouldn't be a Mason. Now, what's that all about? You need to explain that to me. So the pastor wisely gives his dad the gospel. And Darren's dad got saved as a result of that. Darren's mom had trouble. She was mad at me too, but she had some trouble. And Darren said, my mom's in a institution and she's going through a lot of trouble emotionally. And and I wonder if you'd go visit her. I said, I sure will. I went to Columbus and I visited her at Forest Home. And it was an interesting day. It was just a beautiful day. I just sat and talked with Darren's mother Talked to her for a long time, and she received Christ as her Savior. And she and I knelt together by the bed. And I'll never forget how sweetly she just poured her heart out to the Lord and asked to be saved. I got in my car, and I drove away. And as I drove out onto the highway, I realized, wait a minute. 
that lady hates my guts. I totally forgot about that she was upset with me. All the way to Columbus, and all the time I talked to her, it didn't occur to me that she was angry with me. And I got a chance to live to the Lord about seven years ago. She went home to be a Lord. And this week, Darren called me, and he says, I wanted you to know that my dad was on a motorcycle this week, and he was driving his motorcycle, and he had a heart attack. He ran into a wall, and he died. And I want you to know, because of you, I'm going to heaven when I die. My mom's going to heaven. My mom is in heaven. My dad's in heaven now. And I just appreciate what you did. What an encouraging thing. Chaos on earth, right? Death, cancer, heartache, sin. Things aren't the way on earth we wish they were. But in heaven, Jesus is in power. He is in control. He is on a permanent throne. And one day he's going to take all that heaven and he's going to bring it to earth. Will you be with him? What an awesome, awesome book of God we have. And now, for those of you who are faithful, we've been through this entire book together. Before we go home tonight, I've asked Pastor Michael to come and lead us in singing, There is a Higher Throne. Let's stand together, sing this beautiful song about the permanent throne of Jesus in in heaven.